Welcome to Startup Happy Hour, sponsored by Content Allies. Grab a drink and join us to hear fun and inspirational stories from startup founders and visionaries who are making a positive impact in our communities and learn how you too can turn your new and exciting ideas into reality. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Startup Happy Hour. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm here today with Rio Chiba. Rio is the co-founder at Topic, which is um, a startup that helps you create quality SEO content in half the time. I'm really excited to speak with Rio. He's the first content and marketing person that I've had on the podcast so far. So, And as all of you know, that's my wheelhouse. So I'm really excited to talk to him. Uh, and here he is. Hey, Rio, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Thanks so much for being here. So to start off, I, I for sure didn't do Topic any justice in that intro. And I really want to hear you talk more about Topic uh, because I've checked out your website and I've you know sort of done my end of the research, but I want to hear you talk about it as the founder of the company. Yeah, happy to share. So Topic is a B2B SaaS tool that helps uh, anybody who's writing two or more blog posts a week uh, create better got blog content faster. So how it works is that you give our software a keyword. We do the research for you in terms of what your audience wants to learn about. And then we help you bake that into your content so that you can reach more people via search. Got it. So is this more for um, people who need to write, write blog posts on you know very niche topics or very difficult topics that they don't know much about? Or is this more for, uh, you know, a tool that everybody can use just to improve your SEO. Yeah, it's, it's really a tool that can work in both areas. If you're focused in on a specific niche, something really technical, it can be really handy to figure out what kind of jargon or terminology to use, what questions people are asking so that you as somebody who might not be an expert can still speak to it uh, and give it justice. And on the other end, even if you're putting together content that's widely known or more generic, uh, lifestyle type content, it can still be really useful to understand what your audience uh, is asking because you might think that you know all about it, but until you get into the heads of the people who are actually consuming your content, it's it's really hard to nail that down and get that right. Right, for sure. Um, so I saw on your website that you have a request demo button and I really wish we could share our screen right now, but seeing as this is a podcast, I'm wondering if you could give us a uh, uh, walk us through what that demo would look like and help us visualize it. So say I want to write a blog post about um, let's say blockchain. Okay. It's pretty niche mm-hmm. topic and say, I don't really know anything about it, but I have to write a, a blog post on it. So I type, I go to a topic, I type in blockchain and then what happens? Yeah. So at that point we take the top 30 results in Google to analyze what they're covering and seeing what they're using in terms of their headers and questions that they're using. We put that into a research document that our system then allows you to curate into an outline. And then you can either take that outline from our system and then start turning it into a draft, or you can hand that to a team of writers uh, that you might be working with so that they can turn it into something useful. And then our system also has a content grader that allows you to Uh, double check whether your blog posts is missing anything, um, missing opportunities to talk about certain subtopics. 
So that's the high level gist. And the reason why we use the top 30 results in Google is just because Google's already done a lot of testing around what kind of content is really resonating with people searching for different terms. They're measuring things like bounce rate and time on site, different engagement metrics to see how much value each article is adding. And so that allows Google to understand which results are the best to show. And as a result, content that is more relevant to your audience, people are going to spend more time on it. They're going to click more in it. They're going to bounce out less. And so that's why our software works in terms of boosting your ability to rank on search. Got it. And does your software do anything in terms of like, I don't, I don't know if you already touched upon this, but grading each article out of those 30 articles, I, I guess this wouldn't apply so much for blockchain, but I'm more thinking like if I were to be, if I were to uh, write an article on like a political topic, right? Pick any topic. The first 30 results, what if they were all, you know, right leaning or all left leaning and I wanted to write a more unbiased paper on the topic, what, would I be able to see that through the 30 results that you generate? Or uh, is there no way to kind of like grade each article or, you know, get a gist of, of where this is leaning or who wrote this and what their credibility is and things like that? Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up. And it actually highlights some of the changes that are happening on the back end of Google in terms of the kinds of results that they tend to show. So, um, there's been a research paper that Google published that dives into how they're actually putting up the results. But a big part of it is that they try to show different angles, even just on the first page for any given topic. So if it's going to be something about the elections and you put in a really generic search result, they will attempt to figure out how to show you articles that cover that from left and right and more centrist viewpoints. Um, and that way, visitors are higher or there's a higher chance that a searcher gets to the information that they're looking for. And so because we're analyzing the top three pages and that's 30 results, you'll still be able to see articles from those different viewpoints. Got it. Got yeah. it. Very cool. So you're kind of just writing on the algorithms that Google already has baked in, which is pretty convenient. Exactly. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes when it comes to people doing content marketing is they don't take advantage of all that information that's on the search results page, um, because that tells you so much about the people behind the search in terms of like the people who are actually searching what they're looking for. Um, and, you know, a lot of experts, they'll dive into blog content. They think that they have everything figured out in terms of what they want to write about and what they think that their audience cares about. But oftentimes, you know, there's a mismatch between that and what people want to read more about. Yeah, that brings up a really good point. I think nowadays, a lot of times when people think about SEO, they still only think about keywords and they think about using tools like Ahrefs or like keysearch.co or things like that to you know put in a phrase or a word and see how the words or the phrases rank and what the competitive score is and things like that. But from your perspective, what is SEO all about? And I guess, what are your best strategies for having good SEO in your content, you know, besides manually, besides using topic? Yeah, I think in terms of those tools that you mentioned, like Ahrefs or SEMrush, those traditional keyword research tools, that is still a really essential part of the process in figuring out um, 
you know, what keywords to target. But the, the thing is content is getting so much more competitive these days with it being easier and easier to publish um, that really it needs to be high quality what you push out. Generic information is becoming increasingly commoditized. You can already see that when you make Google searches for generic information, Google will actually pull up the sentence of the article that is relevant to your search and show that to you directly in the search results so you don't even click into the result. So, you know, the, the next question is how do I put together this high quality content? And again, the first step in that is figuring out uh, what to actually write and cover. So, yeah, I think the big key, key things are, again, those engagement signals, keeping people on the page longer and making sure that they're getting to the information they need faster. So those are things like, you know, what's the above the fold experience like when somebody just lands for the first time? You know, do, are, are you showing a table of contents to help them get to the right place? Or is the title of your post some, something that's catchy and gets people to click? Um, and yeah, things like how, you know, can I trust your site? If, if I land on it, does it look trustworthy? Those are all more intangible signals that, that traditional keyword research kind of tools and, and strategies don't uh, cover that I think are becoming more and more important uh, as, as competition heats up in the content space. Got it. Yeah, I think all of those are so important to consider and it just goes to show that SEO isn't just one thing. SEO is a combination of so many different things. One other question about SEO is I know at one point there was a school of thought, maybe it still exists today, which is that if you write a blog post, it has to be the longer, the better, basically. So it's got to be at least like 2000 words. If you've got, you know, a 4000 word post, even better. Google loves seeing that. Do you find that to be true or do you find that it's more important to write blog posts that are digestible by your audience. And I think like by digestible, I mean, you know, maybe, I mean, nowadays, like I think everybody's attention span online is pretty short. And so maybe shortening those articles to, you know, 500 to 800 word articles that contain really useful and actionable information and tips and things like that. Like what are your views on, on in that regard? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It, I've seen in terms of our customers, it go both ways successfully. People put, putting together a large volume of shorter articles that are very on point versus other companies that take the strategy of really focusing in on those long form guides that happen to be organized in a way where when people land for the first time, they can quickly get to the section that's relevant to them. So the thing is Google's algorithm is advanced enough now to be able to take a really long form guide and then understand what part of it is relevant to the search query. So that guide could be ranking for all sorts of different varied keywords, and it might be showing up in the search results in different ways because Google's extracting different parts of it and showing it. So I think both strategies could definitely work either way. The key thing is whether uh, the, the content that you're putting together actually answers the user's query um, and the format it's in you know, is more of a secondary factor. Got it. So thinking forward into the future, you know, obviously the Google algorithm is constantly changing and technology is changing so fast that you, you know, you, you almost have to constantly be a student in content strategy and content marketing. But from your perspective, looking forward, what are some trends that you would expect to see 
uh, in the next, say, five years? Yeah, I think one major trend that is coming up is the increase in AI assistance in creating content and in the research process. So, you know, when a marketer hears AI, the usual first reaction is, oh, yeah, like, yeah, right, this is not actually going to help me because AI has been so overblown and oversold, and it's at this point a buzzword. But really, some of the technologies that are coming out now, uh, specifically, one example is this technology called GPT-3. I don't know um, if you've uh, worked with it or heard of it before, but basically, yeah, I've heard I've heard of it, but I haven't worked with it. So, uh, if you can tell people what that is, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So, just to give some background to your listeners, GPT-3 stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. The, it's the third version of the software, and it's released by this company called OpenAI. And they've had a lot of buzz because it's funded by Elon Musk. And their mission is to make sure that AI is used for the betterment of humanity versus uh, you know, hurting humanity. And so this is their first public product. And essentially, you can think of it as a really advanced autocomplete. So typical autocomplete on your phone, it gives you a couple cent or maybe a couple uh, words at most. But this, this thing can generate whole sentences or paragraphs based on the inputs that you give it. So you can tell it, you know, can you write me, you know, the next, uh, the next chapter of this play, or can you help me code uh, the next, you know, section of this app? And so it's really advanced and it's able to produce human sounding text in a way that no other system has been able to do before. And so it's really useful at this point. Now you're starting to see companies use it for things like brainstorming ad copy or variations of A-B tests on landing pages. Um, from a marketing standpoint, it's it's really a goldmine for inspiration. And one of the biggest trends that we'll see over the next five years, just to get back to your question, I think is going to be this tool being utilized and this family of technologies being utilized in, in more of a mainstream content marketing context in terms of assisting in the creation of content um, and the role of writers and editors on marketing teams changing. So previously, it's it's hard to put together a human sounding sentence. You know, a computer can't really sound human very well. But now that it's easy to do, I think writers are going to be making more of a shift towards having an editorial role and guiding a machine and helping curate and inf- the information that a machine generates into something that's useful for readers. Um, and that's that's going to be a big shift that affects all industries across the board if you're publishing online. Yeah. So just to clarify, are you envisioning a future where we might have machines and robots generate an outline, for instance, of a blog post? Or do you envision a future where we'll have machines generate the entire, like write an entire blog post and just have a human basically edit it for, you know, like sentence structure and basic things like that? Yeah, I imagine it writing paragraphs. Maybe it gives you uh, different paragraph alternatives that you could choose from. And then basically writers then piecing together these things into a way that makes sense. And then focusing their energies on some of the more critical thinking and creative problems that a machine still can't solve. Things like coming up with a unique tone of voice, coming up with um, you know unique data sets to work with, or a more entertaining way to present the information. So it's going to be more of a focus on that rather than actually putting words down on paper. 
That's very interesting. And so I guess yeah. with that, with, you know, machines sort of taking away some of the, the tasks that writers deal with on a day-to-day basis today, do you see humans taking a bigger role in other sorts of content, um, say video content or even podcasts like we're doing here, because I, you know, in order for us to do this podcast, like I have to be here and you have to be here. I would have to either clone myself or you would have to clone yourself in order for us to have this conversation, you know, through machines. Um, so do you see like multimedia content becoming a bigger driver of content strategy and content marketing in the future since that requires more of that human skill? Yeah, definitely. I think in is where a machine can't uh, can't work, then it makes sense for a human to be involved. I can't speak to that as much just because I work less with those other formats, but I can say that even for podcasting, um, it can be useful to use AI to discover you know questions to ask interviewees based on what people are searching for online in terms of what you know what questions people have that they want answered because podcasting is such a great medium to dig up that information from experts and then present it in a way that's findable by anybody. Yeah. And for people that do podcasts, you know, obviously every podcast has show notes. Some podcasts have a dedicated website where they repurpose it into a blog post. Some of them have full transcripts from the podcast episode for these written pieces that are attached to, you know, podcasts, for instance, how much do they factor into your overall SEO juice, um, do they, are they pretty much equal to writing blog posts and what's the best strategy there? Is it keyword stuffing or is it, you know, providing the full transcript so that you provide as much information as you can to try and get ranked? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the easiest ways to get started on optimizing show notes is to actually start, uh, start the research process even before the interview and figure out via different search tools the questions your audience is asking on the web and then integrate that into the questions you're asking your guests. And then that way they are essentially providing you the, exactly the content that matches your search audience. At that point, you can take that and then bake that into your show notes. And one key thing too is uh, it's not too hard these days to find uh, to outsource the work of taking show notes and turn the, turning them into a digestible piece that can be, you know, as good as a regular blog post. And I think taking that step is essential because if you're landing on a page and it's just a wall of text and it's not even organized by the headings, that's, that's not good enough these days, I think, to be able to actually rank for terms. So taking those and transferring them into a blog post type format, I think is essential in, in maximizing the SEO potential of a podcast episode. Got it. Got it. Really good tips there. I love that. Uh, okay. So let's, I mean, great chat about content marketing. I feel like I could talk to you all day about that <laughs> since that's what I do day in and day out, but I'm sure our listeners would like to hear about some other things as well. Uh, one question I always like to ask is what inspired you to start your company? Yeah. So the problem behind topic and the reason why we started working on it is that we actually experienced this problem at the previous company that we founded, which was called Tint. But basically, at that company, we we were um, we were growing it uh, over the course of seven years, and we grew it to about forty people. 
um, and 5 million in an annual revenue, but content and SEO was really the backbone of that company. The, the challenge was that it was really hard to scale the processes in creating good content, uh, especially when you're bringing on new hires. So we had our own processes and we knew what to do in terms of the research we needed to do to create a new blog post. But for new hire, it's overwhelming. There's a lot of information and SEO is really daunting because there's so many technical aspects and it feels like a, a mysterious you know, art and science that's really tough to crack. But um, really scaling that process was a big challenge for us. So that's why when we sold that company, we decided to work on this one. And so far, it's, it's been uh, turning out pretty good. That's awesome. So take me back to when did you first start getting interested in startups or when did you first know that you would be a founder of a company? Yeah, in college, I was actually in pre-med. So I was on track to go to med school, but then junior year, I decided to switch into computer science just because I liked the other people in the program more. Uh, it was a little less cutthroat. And at that point, I had a couple side projects with other business students. Um, I was, uh, you know, playing around with the idea of potentially working with a business student after college instead of taking a traditional corporate job. And uh, I was lucky enough to find uh, a, a couple other students who I felt like were uh, fun to work with and, and trustworthy. And so we started working on a project at the time called Hype Marks and we realized that it wasn't going to work out. We switched gears um, and we decided to uh, go with a more B2B approach. Um, we built a company that took our technology from that consumer business and then turned it into uh, a B2B platform. But yeah, it, I've been you know in the startup scene since, uh, since college and it's been an enlightening experience, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I take it that you probably served in more of a CTO role in uh, both your current company as well as your previous company, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, it was interesting because I started out more of as the technical co-founder, but transitioned into more of a marketing role because for us, like I said, the SEO and the content was such a critical part of the business. And it was also a somewhat technical endeavor because it involved uh, utilizing our own product to build backlinks to our system. We had uh, an embeddable product, so we actually used our own product to generate um, backlinks and authority for us. And so now, nowadays people call that you know, growth marketing, but it's sort of the intersection between engineering and marketing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And how did you go about learning all of those marketing skills? Yeah. It was a journey that was kicked off by extreme scarcity because we actually were about to fold our business. We were, I think, two or three months away from running out of cash in our business. And we, at the time, were struggling to find an actual growth channel that worked because we were trying all sorts of things like viral marketing, hooking into Facebook's APIs to try to get people to automatically share us. Um, also PR, but as a last-ditch effort, I sort of happened upon the Moz Guide to SEO, and I started reading it. Oh, I was like, oh, this sort of makes sense. So 
self-learned the basics of SEO, uh, used our own product to start to generate backlinks. And then once we had that engine going, we realized that we could then create content around strategic keywords for us and we were able to grow the business organically. So it was, it was definitely uh, a lucky break for us in terms of being able to find those resources at the right time, sort of in yeah. a moment of desperation. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that's super impressive that you were able to grow your business pretty much purely from SEO, uh, having gone through this process and, you know, obviously like your example is just one, one, and it's very anecdotal, but from your perspective, do you think that every business is capable of relying solely on SEO for their growth? Or do you think only certain types of businesses can, you know, rely on SEO? And if so, like what types of businesses would those be? Yeah, I think there's a category of businesses that have a strategic advantage when it comes to SEO. And not all of those businesses are aware that they have this advantage. And what I, what I mean by that is, it's an advantage that's inherent to their product or service or offering. So for example, uh, I know of one company that has uh, listings for different, um, they're like a place, they're like an Airbnb for event spaces. But one thing that they're able to do is they're able to highlight those event spaces and give them awards within their platform and sort of highlight the, the quality of those spaces. And they encourage those spaces then to post that award on their website. And it's simple things like that that can really create a scalable authority driving authority driving channel. But even if you don't have uh, something inherent to the business that is useful, uh, the fact that your customers are online and searching, if, if that's the case and their people and your customers are online and searching for your service, then um, it's just a matter of time before your competitors are targeting this channel. So, you know, even if it's not necessarily a major growth channel, uh, it is a channel that you should really focus in on and at least be aware of um, because it's, uh, yeah, it's just the bread and butter of how people find things these days, especially now with COVID and the growth and online. Yeah, for sure. Can you also talk a little bit about how you were able to get your business started up in terms of, did you bootstrap both of your businesses that you've started or did you seek out uh, funding for them? Yeah. So for the first one, we were just college kids at the time and we saw funding as a way to prove ourselves as legitimate. So we did get some seed funding uh, and luckily we were able to become profitable uh, after that seed funding and didn't raise uh, in the subsequent six or seven years um, until we sold it. And then for this time around, we're going to bootstrap as our plans are to bootstrap it as well. We want to take a different approach and build a sustainable business, a lifestyle business. And yeah, that's, that's our current strategy. Got it. So having gone through the fundraising route first and now deciding, like what made you decide for this business that you're going to bootstrap instead of, you know, follow the same strategy you used the first time? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That first experience with the first business taught us a lot, specifically about the pressures that come with funding. And even if it's just seed funding, there are now people that you need to satisfy uh, in terms of your company's growth, as well as the expectations uh, at exit. And all of that comes at the cost of your own ability to make choices and, and 
um, your own creative freedom in terms of where you want the business to go. So that's why this time around, we want to uh, focus in on something that we have full control over and can um, grow at our own pace. We saw a lot of other founders at the time take on even way more funding than us. And we were always very thankful that we were lucky enough to become profitable before we needed to do that. Um, because they, you know, I feel like it was a one-to-one correlation between uh, founder stress and funding taken. <laughs> so <laughs> that could be a good thing and a bad thing, but uh, it's, it's just about um, what kind of life you want to live as a founder. Yeah, for sure. And then can you talk also about the process that you went through to get your first business acquired? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that we learned from that experience was just how long it takes and how much luck is involved. The The process involved, and I wasn't directly involved, so I can't speak directly to this, but our CEO uh, basically started putting out through his net- network that we were interested. Uh, he took f- meetings from um, people in the space, but also one critical thing was that we had already built uh, decent relationships with all of our direct competitors in the space. And that allowed us to also explore opportunities for mergers and joining uh, others in our space and also uh, double checking with others, the deals that they were getting to, because uh, interestingly enough, you know, if, if you're starting companies in the same space at the same time, and there's similar levels of growth, uh, similarly, you know, that, that cohort of companies all in that space will want to get acquired at the same time, because probably the founders are going to get burnt out at the same time. So (laughs) we were talking to a lot of the other founders and getting a gauge of, you know, what kind of deals are you getting? Where are you looking for acquisition? And are there opportunities to merge? So that that was, I think, um, a really lucky thing for us that we had those relationships. But in the end, we we were able to get a couple deals that we were able to play off of each other in order to have an exit that allowed us to get what we wanted as founders and also satisfy our investors. Yeah, that's awesome. Having gone through that process, do you think that you would want to repeat that process with Topic somewhere down the line? Potentially, uh, but I think our goal with this one isn't necessarily to wait until a big exit at the end. That can be a really challenging thing, especially once you get five plus years in. And so our plans are to, for now, uh, compensate ourselves in a way that, um, you know, at least matches the market so that it's basically um, our full-time job and something that we can focus in on and not something that we are just hoping on a big payout at the end for. Yeah. Got it. Uh, and so earlier you mentioned that, you know, you and your co-founder, your goal with this business is sort of to create more of a lifestyle business as opposed to, I, I assume you mean like the hustle and grind of, you know, having investors and trying to get acquired or have some sort of exit plan. Uh, can you talk about more what you mean by a lifestyle business? Like, what do you see that looking like? Cause I think a lot of people automatically think about like Tim Ferriss's four hour work week uh, which is pretty extreme. And, you know, I think most people uh, probably aren't thinking quite that extreme when they try to build out a lifestyle business, but what does that look like for you? And then like, what, what are some important things you think founders should do in order to create a lifestyle business? Yeah. So 
lifestyle businesses really range the gamut depending on the founder's motivations. And in the end, it's about creating a business that keeps you motivated in whatever way that is. For some people, that's the ability to not work. You know, it's like having an income stream that they can step away from and do their hobbies. For some people, it's the creative freedom to be able to uh, create, you know, a product without somebody telling them how to build it. And for others, you know, it's the, it's the prestige of, of having built something and being proud of it. You know, everybody has their own reasons for, for starting a business, but I think those motivations are the underlying factor in terms of deciding whether a lifestyle business is right for you because the trade-offs are obviously growth and the fact that if you're bootstrapping, you're just not going to be able to grow very fast um, because there's such a in intense constraint on the amount that you can invest back into the business. But yeah, I think one of the key learnings from the first business that we started was that um, it's important to do some reflection and understand those motivations before getting too deep into making a big decision that's going to affect the rest of your life. You know, if you're about to start a business, really think about why am I doing this? And is this the fastest way to get there? Oftentimes, if it's for the money, there are much better ways to do it than being an entrepreneur. You know, for every one success story, there's a hundred other failure stories you don't hear about. For me personally, my motivation is to create products and see people use them and get value out of them uh, and to have ownership over the product in a way that is hard to do at a bigger corporation where you're sort of working on a very specialized part of the, of the product or problem. And so for me, it's, you know, logging into our system and seeing our users and talking to our customers. That's really fulfilling for me personally to, to have over ownership over that whole process and know that they're, you know, they like what I built. So that's my personal motivation for the lifestyle business. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. I love that you're so hands-on in your business with, you know, actually reaching out to the customers and listening to them. I think that's, uh, that's a, a pattern that we've heard on this podcast from successful founders is really that like that genuine care that they have for their customers inside and their willingness to, you know, maybe not put themselves on a pedestal and say, Hey, I, I'm, I'm the co-founder. I'm the CTO. Like I'm too good for these tasks and to go to the ground level and really speak to the people that you're trying to serve. Yeah. I think it's such a real gift to be able to talk to people who will actually give you the time and use your product after going through this experience. It's like, you know, how hard it is to sell and convince people that what you built is useful, but once they're getting value out of it, it's, it's really, uh, it's really something to be grateful for and to appreciate. Yeah. For that's sure. my philosophy it, on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great philosophy. So outside of work and founding startups and all the awesome things that you've done in, you know, the, in your career, what are, some things that you like to do outside of that, like hobbies that you have. Tell people a little bit more about who Rio is outside of work. Yeah, outside of work, uh, one thing that I have been getting more into is painting, uh, watercolor painting specifically. We started, I started doing it as part of, so at our previous company, we had a big focus on company culture and making sure that we're encouraging growth. And so we had the self-improvement program where every month we would allocate a certain 
part of our budget to be dedicated to like a self-improvement um, type game or goal. So it would encourage people to try out new hobbies or invest in themselves. And one month I focused on trying to get better at painting. And so since then I've been sort of playing around with it, but it's, um, it's a really fascinating analog to building a software product because uh, it's, it's similarly challenging, but, and also I think that it's a hobby that would appeal to if there are any engineers listening on the show, uh, because even though art seems really fluffy and really different than engineering or development, you achieve the same flow that you do when you're coding, when you're painting and analyzing, analyzing a scene. And that's been really fulfilling to explore. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective that I didn't, I wouldn't have thought of on my own comparing art to engineering. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you, you have these stereotypes of artists and you have stereotypes of engineers and, you know, it's, it's a really similar task. You're taking, you're taking a scene, you're breaking it apart into its components. You're trying to figure out how they relate to each other and then how to portray them in a way that is efficiently digested by uh, not a computer, but the human eye, you know? And so it's, yeah, it's an interesting problem to explore. Yeah. Well, when you break it down like that, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think an, another aspect of it too, is you probably need a lot of patience with painting, right? You have to get every detail right. And it takes a while to do a, to, to make a good painting. And similarly, like with coding, sometimes you have to be very patient um, in trying to figure out the right code and make things work when they're not working. Absolutely. I think that's another area where they're really similar. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, if any developers or engineers that are learning, go and take on painting. If you haven't tried it yet, you might just find <laughs> great success in it and make that your next career as a painter. Um, all right. So Rio, thinking back to your journey to getting here, what would be your number one piece of advice for, let's say a young engineer who wants to become a technical co-founder or CTO one day? Yeah, so I, I really like that you set the scene with a specific person in mind because advice is really hard to give uh, if it doesn't have that context. So thank you for doing that. But if you're just starting out and you're interested in becoming a technical co-founder and you're you know, an engineer, then my biggest tip is to have a lot of side projects with other business students or people who would be more of on the other side, the business side, um, and use that to figure out who, who to get a gauge of people's characters and who you feel like you could trust to work with long-term because more, more than the idea at an early stage, it's really the team. And you hear this advice all the time from investors when they talk about why they choose certain teams um, and to invest in is that they're more focused on the people than, than the idea or the industry or the opportunity because you know the right team is going to be able to pivot and find the business opportunity even if right now they don't see it or they're really far away from it so yeah i think the biggest advice is to meet a lot of people uh so that you can have a good sense of who you can trust i love that great advice great advice so last thing real before you go i always like to end every episode with a fun little game it's totally random totally for fun not related to business or anything like that um, so we can play the word association game or we can play this or that. Do you have a preference? Yeah. Uh, 
the word association game seems more challenging. So let's go for that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Everyone picks this or that because I think it sounds easier, but I love that you're up for a challenge. Okay. Let's make this a good one. So I've got 10 words here. Uh, we're going to go super quick, rapid fire. I'm going to say a word and you say the first word that pops into your head. No explanation needed. It doesn't have to make sense. It's it's just, we're just going to go as fast as we can through this. Okay. Okay. All right. So first one, start up. Bird. Robot. Fast. Founder. Sad. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, founders, founders will all understand that they've had a sad moment. Yeah. In their, yeah. True. Yeah. True. Very true. Okay. Next one. Superpower. Red. Art. Clever. Teamwork. Yes. Unicorn. White. Podcasting. String. 2021. The hardest year of all of our lives. <laughs> Wait, 2021, not 2020. Oh, well, you never know. I think 2021. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you really think that? I think it can't be worse than 2020. I don't know. I like to set my expectations low and then be surprised. That's okay. That's, I think that's a good, that's a, that's a good strategy. Let's go with that. All right. Last word, passion. Intense. All right. Nice. I like that. I think you <laughs> gave the most random words out of anyone that I've had play this game on the podcast. And I love it. That's like the whole point of it. Yeah. String. I, I don't know where that came from. But I don't know good. where that came from either. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, thanks for, thanks for uh, entertaining me in my little game. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be here, Rio. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to get in touch with you and uh, have a conversation with you, or if they want to learn more about Topic or sign up for Topic, where they can do that. Yeah. So you can find me and Topic at usetopic.com, spelled the regular way. And I'm on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled R-Y-O, as in red, yellow, orange. And yeah, if you search for me and topic, you'll be able to find me. Nice. I love it. I, I love your use of color. That's a thing. <laughs> Maybe it's because you've been doing a lot of watercolor painting. So all you yeah. think about is like colors right now. <laughs> Very true. All right. Well, thanks so much, Rio, for being here. Really appreciate it. I, I appreciate you sharing all of your nuggets of wisdom on content marketing and strategy with us. And I personally am really excited to check out topic. I think it can really help me in my day-to-day job. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Diana, for the opportunity and looking forward to it. Of course. All right. Talk to you later. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Startup Happy Hour sponsored by Content Allies. If something we said today resonated with you, please share our episode on social media and sign up for our email list at startuphappyhourpodcast.com. Happy hour doesn't have to end just because this episode is over. Continue the conversation with us at startuphappyhourpodcast.com or on Instagram at startuphappyhour.